Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David had a very interesting conversation with Scott Belfour, the president and CEO of Amira. We focused on really kind of two topics. Uh, one, it was the economic impact of Amira in this region. And uh, secondly, the transition of one of their key holdings, Nova Scotia Power, uh, to net zero, uh, which uh, uh, which they have some very aggressive plans in place and have made quite a bit of progress, but they have some way to go. But, you know, uh, you and I both agree that we need many, many more head offices in Atlantic Canada. They create economic wealth to this region because what they do is they bring in revenue from other places to pay for high-paying jobs, just like Amira does. And Scott basically indicated that there's a couple hundred people working in Amira Place in downtown Halifax supporting uh, their uh, activities, most of which, by the way, are outside Nova Scotia. Only about 30% of their revenue comes from Nova Scotia. 60% comes from uh, uh, Florida. And the rest is, uh, you know, uh, across the rest of the operations, including a little bit in New Mexico some in New Brunswick and other places. So 70% of the revenue from Amira is earned outside Nova Scotia. That's a pretty impressive number. It's an impressive number. They are now a TSX 60, top 60 company on the publicly traded uh, TSX. They generated $5.8 billion in revenue last year, 60, $36 billion in assets across all of these utilities. They've got a small utility in Grand Bahama and one in New Mexico as well. So they are building a North American energy powerhouse from Halifax, and I agree with you. Uh, it, uh, the head office, the economic, the high-paying jobs, that's all good, uh, and um, it should give help them in terms of capacity you know, to, to address some of these things like transitioning uh, to net zero. Yeah, and you know, they don't get enough credit uh, in the region or in, in Nova Scotia for what they've been able to achieve. It's pretty impressive. And uh, you're doing it uh, with a pretty aggressive uh, plan. They still expect to continue to grow uh, going forward, uh, you know, outside this region, which means even more jobs that will be paid for uh, for uh, Nova Scotia in this region. So uh, in their total number of employees, by the way, is uh, 7,100 of that number. 2,400 are in Nova Scotia. So it, it, it's probably, if not the biggest, one of the top two or three biggest employers from the private sector in Nova Scotia. That's a big number, right? It's a big number. And we talk about that a lot in economic development. You take a company like McCain Foods, you get good at something in New Brunswick, and then you take it and build a global empire out of it. And that's what Amera's doing in energy. They're basing, started with Nova Scotia Power, and now they're building a global or at least a North American energy company out of, out of uh, Halifax. So what are they going to do, though, around net zero? I know you had a good talk with him about that. Yeah. But before I get to that, there's one other number that I was really impressed with, David, and that is how much they spend on goods and services in this region. They spend $2.3 billion a year. <laughs> and, and that creates... They just recently did an economic impact study, so they have really current numbers. That generates about 4,100 jobs, indirect jobs, as a result of those expenditures. It supports, uh, in Nova Scotia alone, about 4,500 com- uh, companies. In the region, over 7,000 companies are benefiting from working with Emir or one of their subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that economic impact is, you know, very broad. Very, there are a few companies that would have that kind of reach in terms of uh, economic impact. So I just wanted to get those numbers out because I think it's so impressive. Uh, In terms of the transition, you know, one of the problems that NB Power have and Nova Scotia Power is they both have thermal um, generating uh, coal firing plants. Um, They're they're both trying to get out of the business of of coal uh, burning plants by 2030. The problem is, is that those plants, uh, you know, that's not the life, time expectancy use of those plants. They're going to be closing them early, which means they have stranded assets that somebody's going to have to pay for. I wonder who that would be. And, you know, I think that this is a challenge uh, that uh, both New, uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia have in terms of transitioning away from thermal to some other renewable 
and to do it in a way that's affordable to the ratepayers, because those costs have to be paid for one way or the other. They, they, they don't disappear. They have to be paid for. So that's very challenging for both provinces. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, you know, we've talked about that over the last few weeks with other other energy companies in the region. It's a real issue. And I hope there's going to be some national or federal support, financial and otherwise, to help make that transition. If you look at the auto sector in southern Ontario, the feds are pouring billions and billions to transition that sector. And we've got important industries down here. And one of them is the energy sector. Uh, and hopefully uh, the rate payer won't be burdened with all those costs. But at the end of the day, somebody's going to have to pay for it. But what are the options, Don? I know you talked to him about the Atlantic Loop. You talked to him about other options. What They've got Nova Scotia is even worse off than New Brunswick. They have a much higher share of coal-fired power plants right now. And they want to be off at what, in a decade, 15 years? What's the timeline? Well, right now, based on the latest numbers I saw, they have something like uh, 47% of the energy is produced by coal right now. They want to be off that in eight years' time. That's a big, uh, that's a big challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, Scott said that the best uh, source right now is wind. Nova Scotia is blessed with lots of wind, and that apparently it's getting windier every year. So, you know, wind is, uh, is a good resource. It's probably the preferred resource for Nova Scotia Power as a renewable right now. Um, uh, he talked about hydrogen. Uh, he said that that's a ways away, quite expensive right now, and, and, and he doesn't see uh, that in the short term. Solar is not nearly as good here as it is in Florida, <laughs> where they're going solar in terms of the renewal down there. Um, and he also talked, uh, we talked a little bit, I asked them about the SMRs because I was curious about what their position was. It's not in their uh, looking ahead document. Uh, they don't include n- nuclear power as an option. And that's because, uh, as you know, it's not, it's not uh, legal to uh, do nuclear in Nova Scotia. There's legislation preventing the use of nuclear. <clears throat> I think that's going to change. You and I both believe that's going to change especially with the uh, conversation we had with Brett Plummer about small modular reactors, uh, NB Power, because of their experience with nuclear, they're going to have the first small modular re- uh, reactor uh, in Fredericton, or not in Fredericton, but next to LaPro. I think, and he, and I, I, I felt that Scott intimated this, that if they prove that technology, it'll be a lot easier for other provinces, especially Nova Scotia, especially Nova Scotia, to, um, you know, go along with that technology once it's proven. So uh, that is not off the table in Nova Scotia, even though it's not in their formal plans. You got to think it's in the back of their minds. Yeah, because you and I have talked about this before. You know, the Atlantic Loop seems like a potential solution. You, you, you upgrade the infrastructure, the transmission infrastructure, and you bring all that power down through Quebec. Uh, and then you just basically buy all that power from Quebec and possibly Labrador but then you lose the economic benefits from the production of that energy and the high paying jobs. So one of the things we need to look at is both, right? What's the best solution for the rate payer, but also for the economic impacts and maybe SMRs are part of that solution. So I think you're probably right. I think Nova Scotia might revisit that. Uh, You know, everybody's revisiting nuclear these days because we want to use it uh, as part of the mix. Uh, But certainly that's a big challenge, eight years to try and get off coal. Yeah, it is a big challenge. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think that uh, it, it's going to be more challenging in the fact that uh, it, he's obviously in favor of the Atlantic Loop. But I asked them about the timetable to get that struct, uh, you know, uh, constructed if they were given the approval by the end of this year. And he said the, uh, you know, the uh, engineering part is the easy part getting approval, the environmental approvals, getting agreement with the Indigenous communities, that's the hard part. So, you know, uh, it can be done physically by 2030. He he basically said what he was not sure about is if it could get approved in a timely fashion to achieve the 2030 date. So, you know, that's that that's the big uh, barrier there. And, um, and that was pretty realistic, I think, based on his his assessment. So, you know, a very interesting conversation. Uh, You know, we continue to add to our knowledge of the energy choices and challenges in in Atlantic Canada. This is is another very good conversation. I think our listeners will get a great deal out of this. And they might even be more sympathetic towards Nova Scotia Power and some of the challenges, especially given the fact that they're right in the middle of a very 
you know, controversial rate increase um, application in front of the URAB at this mm. very moment. So here's our conversation with Scott. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Don. We always like to begin by finding out a little bit about our guests and finding out uh, specifically about your path to your present role. Can you tell us a bit about uh, how you came to be the CEO and uh, president of Amira? <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I was uh, born and raised in uh, in Ontario, just outside of uh, Toronto, in in uh, in Oakville. And uh, after completing uh, schooling, started my career in in banking, largely um, you know trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, kind of thing. And so was doing mid market commercial lending uh, in uh, in Toronto, and uh, and then uh, progressed through to corporate lending and and doing workouts that um, you know after a number of years in banking led me to construction, a company then called um, Armbro, ultimately called Acon, and was there for 17 years uh, in progressively senior roles uh, there. And then in 2012, um, uh, my predecessor and and some colleagues convinced me that uh, um, would be a, a great great thing to join the team here at uh, at Amira, which uh, surely was. So I moved my my family, my 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 wife and three boys. Uh, to um, uh, to to Nova Scotia and um, uh, and uh, have been here since. So I joined in 2012 uh, as uh, chief financial officer. Um, became a chief operating officer in 2016, and um, and uh, into the current role in 2018. Clearly, Emir is uh, a major company, headquartered in Halifax. Uh, that you know, have a number of companies in your portfolio. You know, we really like to provide our listeners with a high-level understanding of Emir and its holdings. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your company? Yeah, so we, you know, as I think uh, many would would know, we really started as as uh, the owner of a single electric utility, Nova Scotia Power. Um, you know, and about twenty years ago, um, started to grow from that. As but as we as we grew, always remaining very prideful of um, of our Halifax uh, headquarters and Nova Scotia roots, um, uh, almost wearing as a badge of honor. Uh, frankly, I would uh, I would say. And uh, today we're a holding company, a publicly traded uh, holding company, a TSX 60 uh, company. We have two and a half uh, million customers in North America and the Caribbean. About 60% of our business today, a little more than that, is in the state of Florida. Uh, about 30% here in Atlanta, Canada, and then 10% uh, kind of split between New Mexico and the Caribbean. Um, and so our Atlantic Canadian companies would, uh, in addition to Nova Scotia Power, which would be by far the largest uh, here in Atlanta, Canada, would also include uh, Amir Newfoundland Labrador, which of course owns the Maritime Link uh, project, the, the hydroelectric um, uh, transmission interconnection to uh, between uh, Cape Breton and, and Newfoundland. Uh, Amira New Brunswick, which owns a, um, a high capacity, high pressure um, gas transmission pipeline um, uh, connecting to the uh, Canaport uh, facility in, uh, in St. John. And Amira Energy, which is a energy marketing and trading uh, business, very active uh, in, uh, in, uh, Northeast U S in particular. You know, a lot of people don't understand the value of having a head office, uh, in your community. Um, clearly Amir has had a major economic impact in Nova Scotia. Um, have you ever done any studies to provide a scale of that economic impact for our listeners to better understand? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and 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 so we have, um, but actually quite recently because it's a you know it's a it's a story uh, that I think is isn't well understood, and so we um, um, Gardner uh, Pinfold recently completed an economic uh, impact report, really you know getting at your question, looking at the value of having a a, a company like Amira headquartered uh, here in Nova Scotia, and um, you know no surprise, I found that Amira's success in Nova Scotia is a substantial contributor to the to the economy uh, here and uh, so um, by their estimate uh, in total we contribute 1.1 billion dollars to Nova Scotia's GDP each year or about 3.1 percent of the overall economy here in Nova Scotia uh, and supporting uh, about 6500 small businesses here in the province yeah that's a 
that's a big impact uh, and, and and maybe one of the biggest impacts from a privately held company, uh, I guess. Uh, how many employees currently work with Amira? So we've got about 7,100 team members across uh, Amira and uh, of that about uh, 2,400 are Nova Scotians working uh, working here for um, uh, Amira companies, uh, Nova Scotia Power and Amira and, uh, and Amira Energy here in uh, uh, here in Nova Scotia. Yeah. So with with that rank, you as the number one private sector employer in the comp. In the, in yeah, the it's a good. Province. It's got to be. It's got to be close. We're certainly one of the uh, one of the larger em- employers. Certainly, uh, certainly, uh, government uh, is a is a large uh, large employer. But we'd certainly uh, that, and certainly one of the largest publicly traded companies headquartered uh, in uh, in Nova Scotia as well. Yeah, I'm curious. Uh, you know, how many head head office jobs would you attribute? Uh, uh, to the companies that you operate outside of Nova Scotia. Yeah, well, so you know, all of our all of our headquarter jobs are in Nova Scotia, um, um, with very few exceptions. Uh, everyone is uh, here working in Amira Place uh, in uh, in downtown Halifax, and it's uh, you know a little little less than 200, 100, 180, something like that, um, um, and that's not including the folks at uh, at Amira Energy, which would uh, add to that number as well. But just closely connected to uh, to having our headquarters here. Yeah, and to be clear, uh, a lot of those jobs would not be here if you weren't <laughs> headquartered here. Obviously, yeah, yeah that's uh, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. Now, obviously, Amira is a major consumer of goods and services. Probably part of your economic impact. You took a look at that. How much would uh, Amira spend on goods and services in Nova Scotia during a typical year? Yeah, so so in Atlantic Canada in totals about 2.4 billion a year, and the vast majority of that, 2.3 billion uh, a year of that is uh, is in uh, is in Nova Scotia. And I think it's worth noting too, Don, that of course that's just our our direct spending, but there's sort of spill on um, impacts for that. So every dollar of our spending is about uh, 400,000 dollars. So for every million dollars of our spending, it's about 400,000 dollars of uh, of spinoffs. Uh, sort of uh, connected spending uh, also in uh, in Atlanta, Canada. Yeah, so for that uh, over $2 billion of spending uh, obviously uh, supports a lot of other jobs in Nova Scotia. Have, have anybody, has anybody tried to put an indirect number, uh, a number of the indirect jobs that uh, that supports? Yeah, well, I can, I can, I can get at it. Uh, so two ways. One is it's about forty-one hundred. So against our twenty-four hundred Nova Scotians working here, there's another sort of roughly forty-one hundred indirect and spin-off jobs uh, in the uh, in the province. So about um, you know for every every job here at uh, Amira, based on uh, on the uh, Gardner Pinfold report, it's about another 1.94 um, uh, uh, sort of indirect and spin-off jobs. And then similarly, for that uh, capital spending, um, you know, we su- support a significant supplier group too. So, you know, we're supporting 4,500 suppliers in, uh, in Atlantic Atlantic Canada, um, and then another 2,300 sort of elsewhere uh, in in Canada, and those, you know, across multiple locations. Because of course, some of those suppliers have multiple locations themselves. So, uh, just here in Atlantic Canada, it's uh, supporting suppliers with about 7,000 locations in Atlantic Canada. So, you know, a pretty significant impact as uh, uh, as we found this work from uh, from Gardner Pinfold in terms of the, the the value and impacts of our operations here in Nova Scotia. Yeah, again, you know, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this podcast with you is to highlight, uh, you know, all the all the economic uh, impacts that happen as a result of having a large, and you are a large, at least in our terms, um, head head office company here. Uh, Amir is an important community partner and contributes to many philanthropic causes throughout the province, including the funding of the Amira OVA, uh, that which I think everybody's pretty familiar with. Uh, what is the major focus of your philanthropic efforts in Nova Scotia and other parts of Atlantic Canada, Scott? Yeah, and and you know, as I get to that question, Don, your you know your your lead-in sort of prompted a thought for for me, and appreciate the opportunity to tell the story because I think, you know, the reality is as we as we run um, you know electric companies and gas companies, obviously we're we're pretty good at a lot of things. One thing we're not so good at is telling people what we're good at, um, mm. and so <laughs> so I appreciate the opportunity to tell some of that story. And and so you know to your point, you know we do invest significantly in the communities that we uh, 
uh, that we operate and the lion's share of our community investment of course happens uh, here in Nova Scotia where our head office uh, is our, our community investment programs you know not surprisingly uh, we work to try and keep it aligned with our strategy our values and our and our culture and so within that our key focus for the last number of years has really been centered on on youth on safety uh, and innovation and then more recently uh, have also uh, uh, included a, a specific focus on uh, diversity equity and uh, and inclusion particularly here in Nova Scotia yeah so uh, can you give us a couple of examples of the kinds of things that you're directly involved in just to give us you know some some something to think about yeah so you know I think in, tw- in 2021, Don, in terms of Nova Scotia, we invested about $7 million in community uh, initiatives um, uh, here in in Nova Scotia. And and some of those uh, supporting uh, some of that uh, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion uh, uh, newer uh, focus, as I mentioned, Um, uh, we announced uh, uh, the the, uh, collectively with the tribe network, uh, what's called the, the tribe idea fellowship which is really working to support uh, participants with access to, to peer networks, to mentors, to um, industry experts, and creating opportunities for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to pursue entrepreneurship and innovation uh, in, um, uh, in Canada. We've uh, recently also, um, as part of our journey to support truth and reconciliation, we partner with the Mi'kmaq Native Friendship Centre on their Everyone, Every Day project, which is supporting neighbourhood shop fronts, um, uh, bringing together people of different parts of Halifax's North End uh, neighborhood to create uh, and learn from um, uh, from uh, from each other. And so, you know, those and then, you know, historically, of course, you mentioned the Amira, Amira Oval and support a number of community centers across uh, across the province and um, invested in the in the Halifax Public Library. And of course, the uh, uh, Idea Hub at, uh, at Dalhousie with a real focus on uh, on youth and innovation there. I'd like to just uh, switch horses a bit. Now, most uh, organizations are facing a tough labor market today. Uh, uh, what are you finding most challenging in the search for talent in today's uh, tight labor market? Yeah, it's a really, really good and timely question because I think you know some of the trends that we're seeing that's created uh, some of that uh, tight labor market, as you say, has really been a sort of increasing. Um, global talent market, but frankly, I think the impacts of COVID has really accelerated that and 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 um, and and added to the challenge. Uh, frankly, where we now compete for talent on a much much larger scale, and um, so I think that trend combined with where we're at in the economy with low unemployment rates means candidates have more options, and and so you know we really need to make sure we're telling our exciting story uh, well, creating opportunities where where candidates can see they have an opportunity for growth and development. Um, we obviously have to be competitive with uh, with our uh, compensation and benefit um, uh, packages, make sure we're providing opportunities to, to develop uh, employees and the like. And I think in all those uh, respects, frankly, I think that's been part of Amira's secret sauce over the over the years is really providing the opportunity for employees to join the team and, and grow and develop and for their career to uh, to to uh, uh, take directions uh, over time that um, that even they might not have uh, expected when they joined. I would I would say as you think about this market, one of the one of the areas of you know that's sort of particularly challenging is in um, information technology and cybersecurity would be an area that you know we're hearing across the industry and even you know across other industries that that's you know that's a real area of uh, of challenge right now to to attract and uh, and retain um, retain people and um, and you know I think some of those dynamics that I talked about earlier are are a contributing factor to that. I I wanted to ask you a a supplementary question on this. I'm assuming that you're seeing a lot of of retirements. You're going through a phase with a high level of retirements in the organization. I think of, uh, often I think of the linemen, who who I think we hear a statistic that the average age is 55 or something like that, might be wrong. But, you know, you have a, a higher the normal number of people retiring from the workforce. Is that your experience? 
Yeah, and you know, I think it's just it's a it's a it's a reality of 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 Canadian, um, if not global demographics. Um, uh, frankly, obviously, with some um, some national exceptions, but 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 for sure, that's a that's a challenge, and one of the reasons why we've you know really uh, tried to up our game as it relates to our um, our, our talent acquisition uh, practices and efforts, and making sure that we're we're really providing a, a an attractive employment um, uh, opportunity in terms of our our culture and the the, the purpose um, and uh, the opportunity to be part of a clean energy transition um, and um, and and even you know sort of the the, the cultural aspects that uh, that we're proud of where our focus on safety and diversity equity and inclusion um, uh, career development um, uh, and uh, even you know things around our sustainability and climate commitments and uh, including our net zero vision by 2050. Yeah, just on the diversity uh, uh, question, uh, you know, uh, the last census, I think, showed that uh, Nova Scotia had 6% of its population were born in another country. It was among the lowest in the country. The country's average was 22%, something like that. I, I, I wonder, what, uh, do you track the composition uh, diversity of, of your workforce? Yeah, we, we, we do, although I'd say, you know, that's uh, that's newer in the in the U.S. Uh, there's sort of national um, almost requirements to be tracking uh, diversity in Canada. You know, the laws are a little more complicated in terms of being able to um, uh, to to require. But we do, you know, we do look for voluntary um, uh, participation as it relates to um, understanding the, the the makeup of our of our labor force. And and look, you know, here's an, it's an area that's that's got an important focus for us. We've been coming from behind. There's a lot of great work that we've done, but mm-hmm. um, but still more work to do. We were honored uh, this year to be recognized by Alike Business. Business Magazine as a employer of diversity, um, and it is an area that we've got a lot of focus in terms of making sure that we're celebrating the diversity of our employees through uh, events and, and employee resource groups, offering uh, diversity, equity, inclusion training, uh, of course, to uh, to all of our staff, and the focus on uh, our community investment program in that area as well. And and look, you know, one of the things we've recognized from long ago, and if you go across the the, the company with with operations and their four team members in the in in the Caribbean with unique cultures there and in Florida and New Mexico and, and across Atlanta, Canada, each, each with their own um, unique backgrounds and, and culture is the reality is we're, we're better for that diversity. Um, uh, we make better decisions. We are better informed, uh, and so it's it's something that we're you know really leaning into and uh, and uh, continuing to, to to lean on and advance the good work that uh, that we've been doing there. We recognize we have more to do. Uh, maybe you can tell us uh, about some of your uh, key initiatives in the recruitment of employees. Are you doing something, anything you know, unique, special that other other people can learn from? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we've got any uh, secret sauce uh, there. There, Don. I do think you know it comes down to to some of the fundamentals of of you know being uh, being uh, being clear and intentional as it relates to our brand, our culture, and our communication uh, of that. I do think we've got a great story to tell. We do uh, strive to be and, and be recognized as an employer of choice, um, uh, which I think is uh, is important that uh, clarity of, of, of purpose around, uh, in our case, um, you know, sort of leading the energy transition uh, in, our, in our industry. Um, and that story, again, back to that culture around safety and and DEI and um, uh, and uh, and the like, and of course, you know, we have to we have to be competitive in terms of of, uh, of compensation and benefit packages, and that landscape's changing quickly. And making sure that we're uh, keeping pace uh, and uh, and benchmarking ourselves um, uh, to uh, uh, to that, to so that we can um, remain uh, remain competitive. So I think you know it's really um, those uh, those key fundamentals that uh, it's just important to get it right. Uh, probably as important as it's ever been. Uh, in order to make sure that we can uh, attract and then retain the best uh, people, which is uh, certainly our goal. Your subsidiary, uh, Nova Scotia Power, is often the target of criticism for service reliability and cost issues. Uh, you're right in the middle of a rate uh, uh, hike uh, hearing at, as we speak. Uh, 
in addition, part of the province's strategy is to get to uh, net zero by phasing out your coal plants. You recently released a fairly substantial uh, sustainability report where you committed to 80% renewals by 2030. That's that's not that far away. And um, can you tell us uh, where you are in terms of a- achieving that commitment? And in broad terms, what are your strat- strategic priorities uh, to uh, transition to clean energy? Yeah, well, Don, you know, first I'd say you're you're certainly right that Nova Scotia Power faces a lot of, of criticism. And, you know, I, I, I point out the team's not often recognized, certainly not recognized enough for delivering what has truly been one of the most ambitious clean energy transitions in Canada. Frankly, it's something Nova Scotians should be proud of um, and frankly a story we need to we need to tell um, more and we've and we've done that over the last um, you know 10 to 15 years and uh, over the last 10 of those um, we've not sought a um, a rate increase a non-fuel rate increase over those 10 years and and Nova Scotia power is in fact one of the most cost effective electric um, utilities on the continent, um, and again, um, uh, not often recognized for that really important work to keep costs as low as possible uh, for uh, for its customers. So, you know, as part of that uh, transition in 2005, so uh, 17 years ago, um, less than 10% of Nova Scotia Power's electricity uh, came from renewables. Uh, so 9%, uh, in fact. And as we sit today, and certainly by the end of this year, we'll be at about 60% of our energy is uh, is from renewables and uh, and not not emitting, working towards meeting uh, the Nova Scotia government's um, uh, target of 80% renewables by, uh, by 2030. And, you know, the reality is decarbonization um, has been reducing the carbon intensity of the energy we're delivering to our customers. Been part of our strategy for for over 15 years. Last year, we announced our climate commitment uh, across Amira um, with a path to a net zero vision, um, but more concrete goals of achieving a 55% carbon uh, reduction by 2025 and at least 80% by 2040, as compared to 2005 uh, levels. And and look, it's it's challenging. The, the reality is, is decarbonizing um, uh, the electric sector or whatever, you know, part of the economy that, that you speak to, um, it, it costs money. And the faster you go, the more it costs. And so, you know, part of Nova Scotia Power's job and, and uh, similarly across our other utilities is uh, to meet those goals that are set either by our customers or uh, in some cases by legislation, by uh, in this case, by Canadian and provincial uh, legislation requiring either closure of coal plants or a certain percentage of renewables and to find the most cost-effective way to achieve those goals. And, and so, yes, it means, you know, Nova Scotia power as it is uh, today is, is seeking um, at rates, frankly, in order to help to finance that journey. And, um, and so on the one hand, it's, it's a really exciting time to be in the energy sector because it's part of a real positive shift uh, towards uh, cleaner energy, but it is a challenge because of course uh, there is a cost associated uh, with that. And, um, and we're kind of the front edge of, of talking about that cost. The cost isn't talked about so much by the politicians. Um, the rubber hits the road with us and our, our job is to find the path that is the most cost-effective for customers and, um, and uh, the team at Nova Scotia Power continues to do that every day. In the last decade or so, Nova Scotia Power has been able to reduce its use of coal to generate electricity. I, I think the number is 65%, uh, maybe mistaken, but yet coal still makes up uh, you know, a significant part of its generating capacity. I don't know what the right number is, uh, 40% or something like that. Uh, can you tell us about the energy sources that you're, that Nova Scotia Power will use to uh, completely eliminate the use of coal? Yeah, so your numbers are your numbers are close to to right, uh, Don, and and so look, yes, we've you know we're on a we're on a path now where, as I said, by the end of this year, we'll be about sixty percent renewables, but the balance is all carbon emitting, and some of that is natural gas, but a lot of that is uh, is coal, and and frankly, we're using those coal plants to backstop 
the intermittency of the renewables, because of course, a lot of those renewables here in Nova Scotia, the most cost-effective renewable energy source here in Nova Scotia is wind. Um, and it's a great resource. It's, you know, it's a Nova Scotia wind resource is 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 one of the best in, in Canada, uh, but the wind doesn't blow every hour of every day. And, you know, our customers expect the lights to go on every time they flick the switch, whether the wind is blowing or not. And so, you know, we still need those those thermal resources in order to uh, ensure that, that the, you know, the lights go on um, and the stove comes on when people uh, look forward. And so, you know, the path forward for us continues to be more of the same in, in some regards, certainly the opportunity for more uh, wind and the province is out um, at now, of course, looking for uh, adding additional wind, uh, wind resources. Um, uh, and while solar is, you know, is a, an important part of the mix, the fact is wind is a far more economic um, uh, resource for us here in Nova Scotia than, uh, uh, than in other places. In Florida, I will say, you know, solar is a really important part of the, um, <laughs> of the, of the forward clean energy mix uh, there. But here in Nova Scotia, really wind and more hydro import uh, is uh, is really the pathway for us to continue to decarbonize. Batteries are going to play, um, you know, a, an important part in that, but uh, but doesn't provide all the capacity we need in order to, uh, to backstop um, uh, wind when the wind is not blowing. And so it's really projects like the Maritime Link, um, which is uh, now in service and in fact uh, delivering uh, clean um, renewable hydro energy from uh, from Newfoundland Labrador uh, and the project that we're um, uh, engaged in in advocating for the Atlantic Loop project, which is a transmission interconnect between Nova Scotia and Quebec uh, in order to connect Nova Scotia to the other very large hydro resources uh, that exist in, uh, in, in Quebec. And so that's really the path forward for us here in Nova Scotia. Um, there's been also a considerable discussion about the cost of stranded assets like uh, coal generating plants when they're closed before the useful life uh, is complete. What impact will these stranded assets have on your ratepayers, Scott? Yeah, it's a you know it's a it's a really good um, uh, question, Don. It's really part of that you know cost of transition that uh, that I talked about, and then we're in a midst of a really complicated. Um, and costly energy energy uh, transition, and that's why pace matters so much. You know, think about it. In in many ways, the the way electricity was generated and delivered hasn't changed a whole bunch in the mm. last hundred years, mm. and it's changing really quickly now. And, and in many ways, we're reimagining and, and replacing a system that's been built over 100 years and trying to do that uh, in, in a 10-year time frame. And, and look, there's no magical solutions uh, to this. The reality is that, um, uh, that we've, we've got to measure the pace of that change so as not to put um, uh, too uh, uh, much pressure on on the cost of that electricity uh, that we that we deliver, it's great that the cost of renewables continue to come down and the efficiency of those renewables continues uh, to uh, to improve. But that's not the only the only solution. As I say, we need we need that backup generation as well. If we're going to replace those coal plants, it means we're retiring them early. So those still have to be paid for over time uh, while we're also then investing in that replacement generation. And so um, trying to manage it to a place where we're not paying for the old and the new at the same time uh, right. is uh, is a challenging thing and all part of, in a way, what uh, Nova Scotia Power is addressing uh, with its regulator and stakeholders now is to how to try and, and manage that in the most cost affordable way for customers. Do you imagine a time in the future, Scott, where the cost of electricity will actually be lower than it is today? Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 hard to say. Certainly, the environment we're in right now, Don, where we've got you know inflationary pressures across uh, across every region, uh, is is challenging. But but look, you know, you can you can look to the the potential for new technologies, the the potential impact from electrification that they, you know, by some estimates, we might see uh, the the um, uh, the demand for electricity double uh, by 2050, uh, and if we get the right combination of, of, of technological development that's cost effective and and a spreading of the cost over over a bigger um, uh, over more demand then that cost uh, per unit theoretically uh, could come down but the tr- the truth is you know today Donnie look at the, the the price of electricity it is 
it is today by far still, if you think about Nova Scotia, a far more economic source of uh, of heat than the alternatives. Um, uh, certainly than um, than uh, than uh, uh, you know other thermal based uh, based products. You put an electric heat pump together uh, with electricity. The efficiency factor that you can get from those kind of appliances today, um, with the the advances in that technology, is 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 remarkable and does in fact create quite a cost competitive uh, offering for uh, for our customers. Well, you, you gave me a great segue into my next question, uh, Scott. You know, electricity demand is likely going to increase rather dramatically, as you mentioned, especially with the electrification of uh, the transportation sector. Uh, what other what other options are under consideration to increase supply, knowing that the demand is you know going to be more than the current generation capacity? Because that's that like I did work with Nova Scotia Power for few decades, actually, uh, as an outside consultant. And it was always about managing, you know, generation capacity. You know, we did a lot of work on, uh, you know, the demand side management, keeping the demand low to, so we didn't have to, you know, have new plants built. But now we're going to be in a situation where there's going to be a need for a lot more electricity. How, how's that going to happen? Yeah, so you know, and it, it even gets more a bit more complex because the way we use the electricity is also changing. Mm-hmm. It's not just it's not just the the absolute quantum, but but how it's being used and when it's being when it's being um, used. And so, as I said, you know, we could see you know some would estimate that the the demand for electricity could double by 2050 with uh, with with electrification. And so, their long term planning is really really important. That's increasingly challenging with the pace of change that I mentioned. Um, before, but uh, but each of our utilities, including Nova Scotia Power, would have you know long-term plan, ten-year ten-year plans in place as to um, how it looks to address that. In, in Nova Scotia Power's case, it's called inter, in, uh, Integrated Resource Plan, an IRP, which uh, is is available online with multiple scenarios, uh, looking at different generation profiles and different um, uh, demand uh, uh, profiles. But largely, you know that that more wind. More batteries, more transmission capacity, are really the keys to be able to to meet that to meet that generation capacity, that supply capacity. But the other important aspect is how and when it's used. And you mentioned you know demand side management. That's also really important if you you know sort of think about it this way. If all of a sudden um, half of the people on on the street in which you live, Don, or for any of us, all of a sudden went out tomorrow and had an electric vehicle, and all came home at six o'clock and plugged them in at the same time. The system would fail. The system is not designed for that kind of instantaneous large load at volumes, um, uh, and so we're going to have to invest in the distribution system as well to support that. But also think about well, how can we manage the 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 use, the the timing at which electric vehicles are charged, so as not to put unnecessary incremental pressure on the system and drive even more costs. So these are all things that lots of lots of people are are uh, are working on and focused on, but all part of the challenge ahead as we think about um, this uh, significant transition that uh, that is underway. You know, I'm, I'm one of the 40% of the population that has an oil-heated uh, home. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in switching off oil. I'm interested myself. I've done some investigation. Uh, you know, there's, uh, for the system that I'm thinking about, which is an electric furnace, <laughs> I was worried about the cost of, of heating using electric electricity, obviously. And I found out that, uh, you know, there's time of day rates for that purpose. Now, as I understand it, that's not universally available to all customers at the moment, right? But is that something that, that you're looking at? Yeah, I, I suspect that'll be part of the part of the future. Is is a, uh, you know back to things like electric vehicles and and trying to incent um, uh, the 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 usage of electricity to to, to non peak times. So mm. you're right. Today it's it's limited to people that have certain to customers that have certain appliances right. um, like thermal storage and uh, and 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 other things. And um, and so I think um, uh, uh, the 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 ability to think about, um, you know, rate structure, working with the regulator and the province uh, to uh, to create structures that uh, that helps uh, with that transition, um, I think uh, I think um, is is helpful. But 
but I would even argue um, uh, Don should, should chat to the team at Nova Scotia Power, talk to them about um, you know electric uh, furnaces and and heat pumps and and even without that time of use uh, time of pricing, I think you'll find the the payback on that investment to uh, to an electric device today in this market um, uh, makes it uh, uh, makes it a no brainer for you. So uh, anyway, <laughs> our team can be helpful. Please, please just yeah. reach out. Let me know. Okay, I'll do that. Uh, we recently had uh, Brent Plummer, the uh, New Brunswick Powers Chief nu- Nuclear Officer, on our podcast to talk about SMRs, small modular reactors. It makes sense, obviously, that uh, NB Power uh, would be considering this option given their nuclear power generation experience. Nuclear power is currently prohibited in, in Nova Scotia. Um, we note that uh, in your sustainability report, it, there's not any mention of SMRs as an option. Do you think that there's a future for SMRs in Nova Scotia? Nova Scotia? And if so, um, what role do you foresee for SMRs? Yeah, so you're you know you're you're right. Uh, at the moment, SMRs aren't uh, uh, aren't part of the the options that we're pursuing at this at this time. But I but I'd say it this way. So as we look to our, that 2030 goal, we need to be um, investing in and um, and developing um, uh, generation sources that are known and cost of, cost effective today. Hmm. And SMRs just aren't yet. And I put hydrogen, green hydrogen, in the same in the same camp but um but between um uh, small modular reactors uh green hydrogen or ammonia in the, in, uh, perhaps in the case of uh, our sector and uh, and carbon capture as well as the continued advancement of battery technology i think they're all going to be very important components of that pathway to to 2040 and 2050 as we continue to decarbonize um, it's hard for uh, electric utility that you know needs to uh, we're we're held accountable to make sure that we provide the most cost effective pathway forward uh, so today that wouldn't include those technologies, but as um, as uh, NB Power and uh, and uh, Ontario Power Generation and and other non-Canadian uh, parties continue to advance the technology around SMRs, we're hopeful that they'll be part of uh, uh, of, uh, of a cost-effective um, uh, part of the solution as we look to to uh, remove the the last components of uh, of carbon from the generation mix uh, in uh, in the electric sector. I just want to mention that Brett uh, told us that they uh, are hopeful. They target uh, 2029 to have the first SMR up and running. And I'm I'm expecting if they were to demonstrate the success of that, the other Atlantic provinces might might be a lot more interested in that as an alternative, right? Agreed. Uh, you already mentioned the Atlantic uh, Loop as uh, one way to reduce the reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, the Maritime Link is an important step in such a plan, obviously, and uh, you've invested heavily in that uh, in that link. So that that actually helps quite a bit. Uh, what is your view about the Atlantic Loop in general, and more specifically, the likelihood that it ever gets built? Because there's a big price tag with that, isn't there? Yeah, there's no question, and you know, large projects like like this bring with it lots of complexity, and that was certainly true for for Maritime Link, and um, uh, and also true for for the Atlantic uh, Loop. So, you know, look from from Nova Scotia's perspective, right? We're um, you know we were we were blessed with coal as a as a natural resource, but um, but that's not so attractive uh, obviously to us today. We're blessed with uh, um, wind uh, as a natural resource, but but not so much hydro. We've got a little bit of hydro in the system, you know, a little less than uh, 10% of the generation um, capacity today is from hydro resources in Nova Scotia, but there's really no more to develop uh, uh, here. Uh, and so, you know, for us to be in a place where we are we are in a way blessed by uh, our geography in terms of our neighbors. Um, and if you think about uh, the eastern part of, of Canada, so Quebec, um, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and, um, uh, and Newfoundland, uh, Labrador, uh, ignoring uh, PEI for the sake of this discussion, uh, is, uh, you know, two of those uh, provinces have more hydroelectric resources than they can use themselves. 
two Newfoundland, Labrador, and and uh, and Quebec, and two of those provinces, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, uh, still have a significant amount of of thermal emitting um, uh, generation in the mix. And so, to the extent that we could act as a region to the extent that we can uh, move energy around within that region. Um, you know, we've got a made in Canada, made in Atlanta, Canada solution uh, to uh, to a, a clean energy uh, and affordable clean energy uh, transition. And so, um, you know, this is really the idea around the Atlantic Loop. We've now got a connection through to Newfoundland, Labrador. But while there is technically a connection today between Nova Scotia and uh, uh, and and Quebec, it's it's at capacity. There's no incremental capacity to bring uh, electricity into Nova Scotia, not at any scale. And so the idea of the Atlantic Loop is to provide incremental transmission capacity so that we can move energy around and within the region uh, that provides a market uh, uh, for that uh, uh, energy in uh, in Quebec and Newfoundland Labrador uh, and allows us to close coal plants in uh, in New Brunswick and in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And, and really, you know, it's not the only option to address that in Nova Scotia, but but by all the work that we've done, it is by far the best option, the most cost-efficient uh, option, the one that gives the most um, uh, optionality to Nova Scotians for generations to come. Um, and and so we've been working hard with um, with the provincial government here, with provincial governments in uh, uh, in New Brunswick and uh, and and Quebec and their um, utility counterparts, and and most importantly with the government of Canada, uh, who I, th- I think all see this vision too. They all share this vision that this is a logical thing for us to do to think as a region rather than province by province in uh, in relation to energy and so yes while it's uh, it's it's complicated at the end of the day there's no new technology involved here there's no new uh, hydroelectric dams to build this is really just uh, um, building new transmission capacity which companies like hydro quebec and nb power and uh, and nova scotia power um, are very well experienced at and so it's really just getting alignment from all those all those parties so so we're really encouraged, um, Don, as to the progress uh, on uh, on this. But it's you know aligning all these stakeholders is is complicated and uh, and take to- it takes time. Um, we've been clear to uh, to our stakeholders that we're really looking from uh, the government of Canada and others for clarity on this by the end of the year. Because if we if this is going to be a solution for us uh, to achieve those 2030 goals, we really need clarity soon. And so we're working hard to hopefully be in a position where we can talk more about it before the end of this year. Well, let's just talk about timeline just for a second, because you 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 know, you know more about this than almost anybody. Um, uh, assuming, uh, for argument's sake, that the federal government were to endorse this idea by the end of the year, how long would it take to construct such a such a loop? Any idea? We don't have we don't have extra time. So, you know, really that, you know, the challenge, the, the construction phase of it, um, uh, truthfully, is, uh, you know, that that part is is reasonably uh, time certain. The challenging part, of course, is uh, the environmental assessments, the permitting um, uh, and, uh, and and indigenous uh, consultation. So those are, you know, those are really important components to this process to make sure that we get it right. Um, and those things all take time. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, frankly, in some ways, the, the the easiest part of it to uh, uh, to lock down is the construction uh, design and construction table. Those other components are, are harder, uh, and and frankly, you know, we're up against it uh, right now to meet that 2030 time t- table, um, uh, even with uh, with the the, the the timing that uh, that you laid out by clarity by the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's helpful. Thanks. Thanks so much. We also had a recent podcast with John Hawkins. I'm sure you know John, the CEO of Heritage Gas, who uh, was making the case for long-term use of natural gas to address peak load demand for renewables, I guess. Do you foresee the use of natural gas over the longer term to help with, uh, as, uh, you know, uh, peak load demand backup? I do, but I've got a you know I've got a I've got a caveat in Atlantic mm-hmm. Canadian sense, and that and that and so it's sort of back to that previous comment is until there's things like uh, economic and and commercially available uh, green hydrogen uh, or SMRs or you know significant advancements in uh, in battery storage technology. Um, uh, 
you know, what, what we need is some kind of fast acting dispatchable um, uh, generation capacity that, um, that we can use to uh, backstop wind in the intermittency of that, that obviously can change minute to minute. Um, and so, you know, hydro is part of that solution, but there's no question that natural gas is a logical, affordable, relatively speaking, um, uh, component of that. And so we do have some, you know, some natural gas generation capacity um, uh, in Nova Scotia power today. Our, our challenge in terms of thinking about that in a larger scale over time is, is there's just not a lot of natural gas um, available in, in Nova Scotia with the, the shut-in of, uh, of Sable and Deep Pinook. Um, and, um, and so it's, you know, it's challenging to get natural gas into the Atlantic Canadian market at, at, at scale. Um, um, whereas you think about in, in Florida, uh, natural gas for sure is, is a long-term part of the generation future there, even as we add more and more renewables. Um, natural gas is, is really, um, for the time being, the only uh, available source to, uh, to backstop the intermittency of, of solar. Here in Nova Scotia, it's really going to be a combination of uh, natural gas, uh, hydro import, and a little bit of batteries, in part constrained by just the availability uh, constraint of natural gas itself. One of the things I was interested that John said, he said that there's enough me- methane uh, gas coming from, uh, you know, uh, garbage that uh, he said he could supply all his customers for a hundred years by the gas that came off uh, those those uh, gas or those garbage heaps um, but I guess you're not looking at that yourself <laughs> that let's say for argument's sake there was no issue with the supply of natural gases is, is there a possibility that you could convert your cold fire plants to natural gas uh, so, so yeah, I mean, we, you know, as, as, as you may know, we do have some natural gas, uh, some, some, uh, uh, combined cycle natural gas generation, uh, at, uh, at Tufts, Tufts Cove, uh, here in, uh, uh, in, in Halifax Harbor, uh, area, but, but yes, it is possible. In fact, it's, you know, if you look at the Nova Scotia powers, IRP, that integrated resource plan, you'll see that, uh, that's part of the pathway forward. Um, you know, the, the degree to which we do that again. Again, you know, is constrained by availability of uh, of supply, but uh, but we do see that as a a, a much cleaner and more affordable um, um, uh, alternative to coal, and obviously part of that uh, that transition. But it's not the major part. Really, the you know the the focus, the most logical, the most cost effective, the most reliable, um, and the cleanest uh, path forward, I think, for Nova Scotia is find a way for um, another big extension. To some more hydro resources, um, and um, and we think you know the most logical place to do that is uh, is to Quebec. Of course, there's alternatives, but uh, but Quebec would be the most logical. Finally, I, I'd like to look ahead and and you know uh, ask you where do you see the greatest opportunities for Amira to continue to grow its business, which in turn would be you know beneficial to Nova Scotia. Yeah, so, you know, really the energy transition um uh, is is a you know a big part of our um you know what customers and and uh, and governments and and regulators are expecting us to do but also you know an, an opportunity for us to, to to lead the way to uh to invest and and obviously a big part of that is decarbonization but but a lot of that is also meaning grid modernization right sort of taking steps to uh both um uh, invest in 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 the grid to enhance the, the reliability to storm harden uh, the system. We do see, um, you know, meaningful uh, increase in frequency, not so far this year, touch wood, but meaningful mm-hmm. increase in frequency in uh, uh, in storms. Uh, we saw that certainly the beginning part of this year, but so far hurricane season has been uh, reasonably, uh, reasonably modest. But even just wind events, we see more frequent, higher um, uh, level of wind events in, uh, in Nova Scotia. And so making sure that we're investing uh, in, uh, in, in that, uh, as, uh, uh, as well, you know, one of the things that we're very focused on is as part of that energy transition, we're developing a technology called block energy, 
Um, mm. and, and part of that is, is relying upon the development of uh, utility-grade uh, battery technology, um, not the cells themselves, but how you organize the, the, the cells into a package that is more used for uh, residential utility-type uh, storage uh, rather than for electric vehicle. And the, you know, the, the, the usage profile is obviously much different. And we're doing that in Nova Scotia. Um, mm. with a company called uh, called Novonics in partnership with uh, with Novonics. There's some great leading battery expertise uh, here in, in in Nova Scotia, and um, and that's an area of, uh, of focus for us as to how we can continue to support um, uh, and develop that uh, uh, that industry opportunity. I think for us uh, here in uh, in Nova Scotia would be another example of uh, uh, of how we're investing in the energy transition and trying to do as much of that as we can here in Nova Scotia. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on the Insights Podcast and providing our listeners with a much better understanding of Amira, and um, especially with regard to the transition to clean energy, which is a big task, obviously. And also, I think uh, most importantly, uh, you know, one of my my own personal uh, uh, goals uh, is to highlight companies like yours that uh, are headquartered here. People don't understand the value of a headquartered office uh, situation. You're, you're a living proof of how important that is. And uh, I want to wish you every success going forward. Well, I really appreciate it, uh, uh, Don. appreciate the opportunity to, to tell a bit of our story as well. So um, that's, that's been great. Enjoy Thanks. It. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.